Welcome to the Harmony Christian Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by today's message from Pastor Josh Shoemaker. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, um, open them up to John chapter 20. Last week was Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And um, I want to talk a little bit about post-resurrection this morning. Um, The resurrection of Jesus, let me say it this way. The resurrection of Jesus is not the end of our Christianity. I think a lot of times as believers, we get to resurrection we get to the forgiveness of sins. We get to the, the climax of the story in the Bible of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And then we kind of pull a stop right there. Okay, we've done it. We've gotten to resurrection. Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. We're going to heaven. Now we kind of get put on hold until the trumpet sounds and Jesus comes back to bring us all home. It's kind of like we, we pull up a seat at the bus stop. We all turn into Forrest Gump is what, it does, what it's like, right? We pull up a seat at the bus stop. We talk to some people about the past and things that have happened, but we don't realize that the resurrection of Jesus was the genesis of our story. It was the beginning, the initiation, the new birth of our story and our lives as believers, Amen. That the resurrection of Jesus is not where we stop. The resurrection of Jesus is actually where we begin. And so in John chapter 20, we see the story that this is actually the night of Jesus' resurrection. It's Sunday night. Jesus has already visited uh, uh, or has already raised from the dead. The angels have already encountered, or Mary, I'm sorry, Mary... um, Magdalene, that's the one, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and a lady named Joanna have already seen the angels. The angels have already told them that Jesus has been resurrected. Mary has already gone back. Mary Magdalene has already gone back to the tomb and seen the resurrected Jesus. And now we are at the point where the disciples are all together in one room. And we're going to pick that up, that storyline up here in John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. It says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, peace be with you. Now the disciples are hiding, right? They're in the room hiding and for good reason. Not only have the disciples been following Jesus publicly now for three years, proclaiming and preaching his message alongside of him, and now their Messiah has been crucified, right? But now, not only that, there's a body missing. The tomb is empty. The Romans know it. The Pharisees know it. Guess who suspect number one is? No wonder why they're hiding, right? They're, they're in fear for their lives because not only have they witnessed their teacher, the one they were following crucified, 
but now his body is missing, and guess who will be the first ones to be blamed for the missing body of Jesus? The disciples. So they're all hiding together in one room. They're in fear, but notice this. The doors were locked. The windows were shut. Nobody knew where they were, but Jesus shows up. Jesus walks into the room with the doors being shut and locked. Jesus shows up and does what? Speaks peace to those who were in fear. And in fear, let me remind you, for good measure and good reason. Jesus shows up to the place where they are in fear and speaks peace to them. My point is this, that a lot of times there are things in this life that lock us up with fear, isn't there? Some of us have experienced sickness in our body. Some of us are experiencing that right now, currently. Some of us have family members who are experiencing illnesses and there's fear involved in that, that we may lose them. Maybe we have lost them. Maybe it's not anything to do with sickness at all. Maybe it has everything to do with the economy and you're struggling financially with your family and, and you're not sure what to do next. Maybe it's, maybe it's something completely different. Maybe it's, maybe it's even some doubts that you have about your faith and some disillusionment that you're experiencing. And there's this fear that's on the inside of you and it's caused you to be locked up. How many of you ever experienced that before? Fear has just shut you down and locked you up. I wanna tell you the good news this morning is that that fear and that lock up from fear doesn't keep Jesus out. That you can't keep Jesus out. That you may try to lock everyone else out because of your fear, but you cannot lock Jesus out. And Jesus will come into that place where you have locked yourself down because of fear, even legitimate fear, and he will come in and do what? Speak peace to you. Can you just imagine being one of the disciples, having just experienced the crucifixion of Jesus. Three days later, you're just mourning the loss, but also in fear for your own life. And now Jesus' body is missing and you're in fear that you're gonna be blamed. And you're, you have this fear over you and you've locked yourself up, but then Jesus shows up and then he just says these words, peace be to you. I can just hear the disciples sigh of relief as the Prince of Peace speaks peace to them. You know, it says in John, in Jesus's final moments, final hours with the disciples, the night before he is given over to Pilate, he says this to them. He says, I will leave my peace with you. And my peace isn't like the world's peace, right? The world's peace is, uh, is um, dependent on the situation around them, around us, right? For the world, peace is dependent on what's happening on the outside. But with Jesus, his peace comes from the man himself. So whatever situation that you are finding yourself in, no matter how crazy, no matter how chaotic, no matter how fearful it is, his peace does what? Surpasses understanding which means that you can have peace when it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. 
when the Romans are after you, when your life is literally on the line, when Jesus comes in and speaks peace to you, it surpasses understanding, and you can have peace in the middle of a fearful situation. You can have peace in the middle of a difficult, scary, legitimately scary situation. So whether you're battling cancer, listen, his peace surpasses understanding. And in the middle of the fear, you can have peace. When your kids are a mess and everything is falling apart around you in your home, guess what? You can still have peace because Jesus walks into our locked hearts and speaks peace to our hearts. Amen. Jesus comes in. Though the doors are locked, he appears to them. If they were afraid before, <laughs> right? Imagine not how that felt. Jesus just appears before them and then he speaks peace to them. Go on now in verse 20. It says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. When he showed up, the first thing he does is speak peace to them and then he shows them his hands and his side and it says that they were glad. I want to point something out here that I found really interesting this morning. You know, this part of the story sounded familiar because it's exactly what he did when he showed up to Thomas. If you remember the story, it's actually the very next few verses after what the passages we're covering here this morning. But Thomas wasn't in the room in this moment, and he missed seeing Jesus. So when he comes back, I don't, I don't know if he was out getting lunch or whatever. Maybe he was the guy that drew the straw and had to go get the Doritos and the bologna sandwiches for everybody, but he missed Jesus. So when he comes back into the, to the uh, to the room, the disciples are all excited because they had seen the resurrected Jesus. And what does he say? He says, unless I see the scars for myself, I won't believe. And now Jesus comes into the room with the disciples here. And the first thing he does is he shows them his nails, prints in his hands and his feet. And it immediately reminded me of Thomas. And you know, we give Thomas a bad rap for doubting, but Thomas was not the only one who doubted. When you look back into the story, after Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Joanna saw the angels, and the angels said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? It says that those three women ran back to the disciples to tell them what the angel had said. Let me read you the disciples' response in Luke chapter 24, verse 11. When the disciples heard the testimony of the women, it made no sense. Can I get an amen from the men here this morning? No. <laughs> you ain't walking into that trap. Yeah. When the disciples heard the testimony of the women, it made no sense, and they were unable to believe what they heard. It wasn't just Thomas that doubted. The disciples, all 11 of them, had their doubts about the resurrection of Jesus. Same thing happened to the men who were on the road to Emmaus. When they had heard the same report from the women that the original disciples had heard and they were walking on the road to Emmaus and this man shows up as they are talking about the death of Jesus and, and we know the end of the story. The man that shows up is Jesus himself, right? And they are talking about the death of Jesus and they talked about the report of the women and how hard and difficult it was to believe 
the women and what their report was. And this is what Jesus says to them in Luke chapter 24, verse 25 and 26. Jesus said to them, why are you so thick-headed? How many of you, that is, that is the norm from Jesus to you, right? <laughs> You've heard those words before from Jesus. Why are you so thick-headed? Why do you find it so hard to believe every word the prophets have spoken? Wasn't it necessary for Christ the Messiah to experience all the suffering and then afterward enter into his glory? They all had their doubts. They all had their doubts, not just Thomas. Every one of them had their doubts that Jesus would be resurrected. But notice again, the first thing Jesus does after he speaks peace to them is he shows them the scars just as he did with Thomas. And here's what I love about Jesus. He has no obligation to prove himself to you. He has no obligation to prove himself to you. He has no need for you, or I'm sorry, he has, he has no need, he's not obligated to prove himself to you. I'll just say it like that. Before the heart of a genuine seeker, he does anyway. And you may have your own doubts. You may have your own questions and uncertainties. But I want to tell you, for the heart of the one who's genuinely seeking after him, he's not afraid to prove himself to you. He's not afraid to show you the scars. He's not afraid to relieve your doubts and prove himself to you, even though he's not obligated to do so. Amen? In verse 21, Jesus then says this, after he's appeared before them, says peace to you, and then after he shows them the scars on his hands and his side, Jesus says to them, peace to you once again. They needed more than just one time, right? Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. How weighty is this statement? Don't pass over this sentence. As the Father has sent me, the mission the Father has given me on this earth, in the same way that the Father in heaven, before time even began, has given me a mission to be the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth, the same way the Father has, in mission, has sent me, I now turn and send you. How weighty is Jesus' statement here? That just as Jesus was sent by Yahweh, to accomplish his will on the earth. Jesus has now turned around and sent us with the same authority. And you thought you had no purpose. How many people walk around this earth wondering what their purpose is in life, feeling like they have no value, have no, have no value on this earth? But listen to this statement. Just as the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. There is no greater responsibility, no greater commission, no greater purpose than to be sent by Jesus 
just as he was sent by the Father. Let me put it this way. You carry the same responsibility on earth as Jesus did. Let me say that again for this side of the room. You carry the same responsibility on this earth right now as Jesus did when he was on this earth. He sins you. That word there is Apollo. It's also the word that where we get our word apostle. That word apostle is not originally a Christian word. That word apostle actually comes from, uh, from a Greek word. It's from, from the Romans, which is, which is this. When after they would have conquered a land, right? The Romans would have conquered a land. They would designate apostles to go into the land. And the job of the apostle was to bring the culture of Rome to the land that was conquered, right? To get the customs of Rome invested into the land that was conquered. So what is Jesus telling us here? That it is our job to bring the culture of heaven to the earth. That you are sent with the same authority that the Father has sent Jesus with to bring the culture of heaven to earth. Amen? You have a purpose on this earth, and there is no greater purpose or responsibility that we could be given. Your life matters. You have value. What you do on this earth matters because you have been sent by Jesus. Amen? If Jesus is sending us, just like he sent the Father, then maybe we should figure out what the Father sent Jesus to do, shouldn't we? What are we sent to do? Yes, we're supposed to bring the culture of heaven to earth, but what did the Father send Jesus to do? Most would say that he sent Jesus to die for our sins, and they would be correct. Jesus did come. He was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. Part of his mission was to die for our sins, but this can't be what he's sending us to do. Right? Romans 6 tells us for the death that he died, he died once for all. He died to sin once for all. So, so it's not our mission, right, to die for sins. He's already accomplished that. So that also must mean that Jesus dying for our sins, as important as that was to his mission, was not necessarily the only thing he came to do. In fact, I would say for sure that it wasn't the only thing he came to do and maybe even possibly wasn't even the primary thing he came to do. So what did he come to do? What mission did he come to fulfill that he now passes on to us? John chapter one, verse 18. No one has ever gazed upon the fullness of God's splendor except the beloved son, who is cherished by the Father and how close to his heart. Now here it is. Now he has unfolded to us the full explanation of who God truly is. What did Jesus come to do? He came to reveal who the Father is. He came to show us who the Father truly is. What does Jesus say in John chapter 14? To know me to see me is to see my father. 
Hebrews chapter one tells us that he is the express image of the Father, that when you look at Jesus, you are looking at God. God is not some retributive, angry God in the sky ready to smite you and Jesus comes in and steps in and saves the day and saves you from his Father. No, no, no. The Father looks exactly like Jesus, which means this, he is patient like Jesus. The Father is kind like Jesus. He is a teacher like Jesus. He is slow to anger and abounding in love just like Jesus is. He is for your good just like Jesus. And he is self-sacrificing just like Jesus. Where was Jesus or where was the Father when Jesus was hanging on the cross? 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that he was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It wasn't just Jesus sacrificing himself. It was the Father as well. When you look at Jesus, you are looking at the Father. If you want to know what God looks like, we don't look at Job. We don't look at Moses and the law. We look at the person of Jesus. That is who the Father is. So the Father sent Jesus that is a message in itself right there. I could go days on that. The Father sent Jesus so that the world would see what God looks like in the flesh and blood. The, world, or the Father sent Jesus so that the world would see what God looks like in flesh and blood. Jesus reveals God in a way that can be seen, heard, and touched. And now... That, that is what God sent Jesus to do. But now Jesus looks at us and he sends us in the same way the Father sent Jesus. So now Jesus sends us to represent him in a way that can be seen, heard, and touched. What does Jesus mean when he says, just as the Father sent me, I am now sending you? That it is our responsibility on this earth to represent Jesus to the world. It is our responsibility on this earth to present Jesus in a way that is not some abstract idea, but that when they look at us, they see Jesus in us. That just as the Father sent Jesus, he is now sending us in the same way to represent him, amen? We have been included in the divine plan of the Father, Son, and Spirit, which is to make all things new. Verse 22 goes on, and this seems like a big mission, doesn't it? To represent Jesus on the earth. But he doesn't leave us empty-handed in doing this mission. In verse 22, it says this, it says, and when he had said this to them, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He doesn't leave us helpless. He gives us another helper called the Holy Spirit. Now this, this is interesting here. This word breathe is interesting. The word breathe here is the Greek word emphusao. That word breathe there is not used anywhere else in the New Testament except for right here in this verse. 
And even though it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament, it is used in the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint, for those of you who may not know, is the Greek um, translation of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament originally was written in Hebrew, right? And so the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Septuagint is more than likely what the disciples would have read as they were reading the books of Moses and the stories of Joshua and the Psalms of David. They would have more than likely been reading out of the Septuagint. And so the word um, for breathe in the New Testament here in this verse is not found anywhere else in the New Testament, but it is found in the Old Testament. That word breathe there is the same word in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, where it says that God breathed into Adam and he became a living being. So what is Jesus doing here? He breathes on his disciples and they receive the Holy Spirit. And it reckons us back, it likens us back to Genesis chapter two, where God breathes the breath of life into man. What does it mean to be reborn? What are we talking about when we say we are born again? This right here is what we're talking about. That, that Jesus died on the cross and through his death, burial, and resurrection, we actually died with him and it, we were also resurrected with him, right? And now he comes in and just like he did in Genesis chapter two, when Adam became a living being, now Jesus breathes the same breath of life back into us and we are rebirthed and reborn. This, once again, ladies and gentlemen, the resurrection of Jesus is not the end of the story. It is literally our Genesis. That Jesus comes in and he breathes once again the breath of life into man once again. And man is reborn again. Amen. So Jesus breathes the breath of life. This is also the word used when Ezekiel is standing in a valley of dry bones. In Ezekiel chapter 37, and God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the breath to come from the four winds and breathe on the slain that they may live. And the four winds come and the breath of God breathes on the bones. And it says that they stand before him, Ezekiel, a vast army once again. It's the same promise that Jesus gave to Nicodemus when he said to them that unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus breathes once again on the disciples and they are reborn. It's a new genesis. It's a new beginning. It's a new origin. And we are breathed on once again. And then he also told Nicodemus, and those who are born again would be what? Born of the spirit who was as mysterious as the wind. So Jesus breathes on the disciples. They are reborn, given new life, and the Holy Spirit comes in and makes his home in the disciples. So here on the first day of resurrection, on the first day of new creation, God breathed life into his disciples and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Verse 23 is interesting. Verse 23 reminds you that Jesus comes in, speaks life to them, speaks peace to them. 
he commissions them with the same commissioning that the Father has given them, given Jesus. He breathes on them. They, they breathe in the breath of life once again. The Holy Spirit comes into them. And then Jesus says this, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is an interesting passage. So we're going to break it down for just a few minutes here this morning. Jesus has already been very clear in the past that we are to personally forgive those who have sinned against us. You know, the word tells us that if the Father forgives us, we should forgive others, right? Forgiveness is actually even central to the Lord's prayer. That we would be able to forgive the trespasses of those who trespass against us. But this verse doesn't seem to be talking about that type of personal one-on-one forgiveness. It seems here that Jesus takes this forgiveness a step further. Here Jesus seems to be saying that not only can we give a word of forgiveness from ourselves but we have also been given the authority to speak it on behalf of God himself. That not only do we have to forgive others around us on our own behalf, but now we have been given the authority to forgive others on God's behalf. Talk about a major responsibility. It's not that we forgive in our own authority, but as his sent ones, As his apostles, we shared the good news of forgiveness on his behalf. Amen? So we have been given the responsibility to share the forgiveness of the Father with those around us. The second part of this verse can be kind of difficult to understand, though. The second part of this verse says that if we retain the sins of any, that they are retained. And at first glance, it looks like Jesus is giving us the authority not just to give out forgiveness, which is easy to understand, but it seems like he's giving us the authority now to not forgive people on his behalf, to actually retain the sins of those around us. And maybe in some strange way, we kind of do do that. We do that in the sense of, that we call people to face the harm that they do rather than just brush it off like it's no big deal. I like the way one theologian describes it. He describes a story where this man came into the church who was abusive to his wife, physically abusive to his wife. He said, said that he had just actually had abused her to a point where she ended up in the emergency room with several broken bones in her face and possibly could have lost her eye. And the man comes into the, into the church and just expects to be welcomed into the fellowship there at the church while ignoring the fact of what he just did with his wife. And, and this theologian, his name's Brad, he said, now, now hold on a second. <laughs> hold on a second. We have an issue here that needs to be dealt with, right? That we don't, that, that forgiveness requires something which is repentance. It's not that we could ever undo the work of the cross. Let me make that clear. 
We can never undo the work of the cross, but it is our responsibility to help others understand that the experience of forgiveness is tied to our realization that they need it. Does that make sense? It's our responsibility to make them understand that they have a need for forgiveness. Let me, let me just read it from the scripture here. John the Beloved says it the best in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have no sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So it's not that we have the ability and the power to retain power of the cross, the forgiveness of the cross, but it is our responsibility to make sure people understand their need for forgiveness, their need for forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That is actually part of our job to reconcile people to the Father. Amen. And let, let me just, this brief caveat here. What if it does mean, what if it did mean, which I don't believe it does, but what if it did mean we had the ability and the power to retain the forgiveness of the Father for people? What if it did mean that? My fear is that we retain unforgiveness, retain forgiveness more than we give it sometimes. Let's look at Jesus, though. Jesus is on the cross. Being crucified has the world's sin on his shoulders. And what does he do? He looks out into the crowd to the very people who are crucifying him. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even if it does mean we have that ability, which again, I don't believe it does. The measure and the standard of our forgiveness is Jesus. And if Jesus is able to look out at a crowd that is crucifying him unrepentantly, who doesn't feel bad about it, but thinks they're doing the right thing, if he can look out at a crowd and say, Father, forgive them, how much more should we be able to look at those around us and say, God, forgive them? God, forgive them and release the Father's forgiveness to them. And this is part of our mission as sent ones is to reconcile the world to the Father. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus was more than just the forgiveness of our sins and a free ticket to heaven. Our journey doesn't end with Easter. Our journey doesn't end with Easter and then we huddle together in the church, right? Until we die and eventually go to heaven. That's not what God intended for the cross. That's not what God intended for our lives. That we have been reborn and given the Holy Spirit. We have been given the responsibility and privilege to continue the work of Jesus 
on the earth. You have been given the responsibility to continue the work of Jesus on the earth. Easter wasn't the end for the disciples, and it's not the end for us. The resurrection of Jesus is our genesis. It's our beginning. It's our origin. It's our rebirth. Let's go ahead and stand together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Jesus, I thank you that, that the resurrection wasn't the end, but it was the beginning. That, Father, you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't save us just to wait around until you come back. But, Father, you have given us a divine mission. You have sent us into the world just as the Father has sent you. Father, that we may represent you into the world, that we may release your forgiveness, the work of the cross to the world around us. And Jesus, we don't take this responsibility lightly. But Father, we, we choose today to become living sacrifices unto you. Father, that we may represent you well, that we may be patient because you are patient that we may be self-sacrificing because you are self-sacrificing, that we may be kind and good because you, Father, are kind and good. God, may we represent you well to the world around us. Father, we thank you that you have rebirthed us. God, that we are people of the wind because, Father, we are people of the Spirit. Jesus, we thank you for the breath of life that is in our lungs. And Jesus, we honor you today. God, may we be faithful to the mission that you have given us. We honor you in that today. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more messages like this or information about our church, please visit HarmonyChurchFamily.org.